0: Hello and welcome to the Life 2.0 podcast, a podcast about ordinary people composing a life in times of accelerated change. I'm your host, Bea Spadaccini, and I want to thank you for joining me today. In this episode, you will meet Alan Winslow, a photographer, an educator, and a multimedia artist based in Brooklyn, New York. I had the pleasure of meeting Alan at a friend's wedding in August 2018 in upstate New York, What struck me most at the time was the camera that Alan was using to shoot portraits in the evening sunset on the shores of Lake Erie. It was a 4x5 medium frame format vintage camera mounted on a tripod. Yeah, exactly. One of those where the photographer hides under a black drape. Can you picture that? It was an odd visual, that of a young man who seemed to emerge from a movie scene of the past with his bulky equipment, Taking his time to compose the perfect image. The wedding celebration unfolded over a long weekend, which gave me the chance to learn a bit more about Alan and his attempt to live a creative and intentional life. Welcome to the Life 2.0 podcast, Alan. Thank you for making time for us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm super excited
0: cool. So I like to start the conversations by asking our guests about the verb to compose and whether this resonates with you in terms of your own life journey. And if you have any thoughts about this, Alan.
1: It's interesting to compose. I feel that I've, uh, in a lot of ways, have uh, composed my career and my life in an alternative fashion. And I feel that I'm I don't know where it's going, but I'm always composing it as I as I go and always modifying and changing and being open to those modifications and those changes. So uh, to me, that's that's really, really exciting way to live that I'm open and fluid. Um, so yeah, that's a really interesting verb. I like that.
0: You're a photographer and a creative yourself. So when did you consider that in your life, becoming a photographer and a creative? And how did you really pursue a photography career? Was this something that you were thinking about while you were in school or did it come to you more organically?
1: I've been obsessed with the art of photography for a long time. My Father actually took me to a garage sale, and I saw a camera when I was like 13 or 14 years old, and uh, he got it for me at this at this garage sale, and I I became obsessed with it, and I read the Ansel Adams books on the art of making the print and the negative, and I started going into the dark room and developing my own film and and printing my own photos at a really young age. And so I was really obsessed with it and then I followed that into college where I got a degree in environmental science and photography with the hopes of mixing the two the two fields together. And um I just kind of went there. Through that I after college I Worked as a printer at the main photographic workshops. I did that for an entire summer, and then I moved to New York City and really started my creative and photography uh, profession. So it's been, it's been in me for a long time.
0: Even though Alan mostly shoots with a digital camera, his passion is using and rebuilding historic cameras and shooting film. He also likes to go into the darkroom, process film, and print images, Alan has access to a dark room through one of the schools where he teaches, the International Center of Photography School in Midtown Manhattan. So when we met at this uh, phenomenal wedding in upstate New York of a mutual friend of ours, you told me that one of your day jobs is to help researchers visualize their research. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and what type of research requires visualization? And how do you go about it?
1: I have... Multiple tracks in my career, and one of the tracks is producing these long-term, fairly larger-scale fine art projects that are typically grant-funded. And um, and how how I find my topic is by discussing and reading current events and current research projects that are going on in fields that I'm particularly interested in, whether it's environmental issues or it's uh, the millennial generation or it's anything that really sparks my interest. And so what I do is I start off with a question that I want to explore, find some research on it and start talking to the researchers and the scientists that are conducting the, the actual scientific research and try to find a way that I can create visuals to accompany that. The goal is to have a combination of public and private art shows that display what I found out about that research, so that people can then go back and read the actual scientific research that's that's taking place. So it's just another avenue for people to, to get involved in topics that are taking place.
0: Alan's creative process is driven by his own intellectual curiosity. His interest might be sparked by an article that he reads in a newspaper or in an academic journal. First, he will do some background research of his own to better understand the issue. And then, he will contact the scientists or the researchers behind the project to see if they want to meet and discuss a potential collaboration. But in the end, it is really always Alan who will look for sponsors and potential grant money for the project. Sometimes he will start the process by paying out of his own pocket to get his passion project off the ground and started. But eventually he manages to get some funding. Do you have to convince the researchers about the value of visualizing their research?
1: No, usually uh, I've never had a problem with that. Every researcher that I've ever worked with or scientist I've ever worked with has been always been really, really excited about what I'm doing because... Not everybody, and I understand this, not everybody will, wants to read a, you know, a research paper on a specific topic or has time to read the newspaper. And so they're excited that there's another avenue to get eyes on their work. And they've always found that it brings some value to their outreach. I use this, the researchers and the scientists as more of a, a jumping off point and to make sure that I have everything right when I'm going out into the field and exploring. And I know that my visualization is not a pure scientific research, and it's not pure data, but purely a way, a creative way to, to visualize the research that's taking place around the world and get eyes on it. So my hope is that a viewer will come to the show get interested in the topic, and then go research themselves or contact these people and find the the real hard-hitting science that's actually taking place.
0: I'm thinking that there wasn't a job description for this type of work. (laughs) You just came up with it, right? How did you come up with it for the first time? Because you yourself are interested in research, perhaps?
1: First real big project I did out of college was I bicycled around the United States for a full year photographing and interviewing people in small-town America about their views on the environment. I was living in New York City at the time, and I was reading a lot about recycling campaigns and conservation efforts that were happening in larger areas, whether that's cities or just bigger, bigger towns. And I didn't see a lot of information on small-town America and what the views were in small-town America. There weren't a lot of quotes from, you know, rural Texas or rural Oklahoma. And so I got interested in those people and what they thought. I decided that after doing a bunch of research on it, I decided that I would just take off and, and explore that myself. And so that that led to an entire year biking around and literally walking up to random people in small towns and seeing, seeing what their opinion was. And whether that they believed in global warming or they believed that they should live off the grid or anything in between, um, I, I wanted to talk to them and get their opinion. And so that's where that story came from.
0: As he biked across rural America, Alan used audio recording and photography to capture people's opinions on the environment and the changing climate.
1: One of the most interesting things that came out of that project for me, which really has helped me in my career, is the use of language and the proper way to interview someone in terms of when you're using hot topics like Environmentalism and activism and stuff, and that came in a small town in Texas, where I got invited to this this rancher's home, and he was maybe one of the most sustainable living people I've ever met. He lived completely off the grid. Uh, he converted his truck to a biodiesel truck, and he. He often got his food from fishing or hunting, and so he lived a very small, small carbon footprint life. And after getting to know him, I, I, asked, I said, you know, you, you're, you're one of the biggest environmentalists I know, living this small carbon footprint in life. And he took a step back, and he didn't get offended, but he said, don't, don't ever call me that, and. I was confused and I asked him why and he said that he didn't want to be associated with a democratic uh, in terms of the political party's term terminology. He wasn't an environmentalist. And so it was really interesting how I I used that word just environmentalist and he he took it as
0: it's like a politicized word
1: exactly, exactly. and so. He wasn't like I said. He wasn't upset. He wasn't. He wasn't offended. But it was just. It was really interesting to me to see that, um, and then really think about my my words and think about how they might affect her, or or uh, change the conversation. And so that was that was one of my big takeaways from from that trip. Yeah. <laughs>
0: One of the things that most surprised Alan while doing this project was that people living in rural America had a much smaller carbon footprint than people living in large cities. They were fishing and hunting and not traveling as much. They also seemed to be very conscious and aware of the environmental challenges taking place in their own communities.
1: I had a great deal of conversations about, you know, this stream over here, And this factory over there that are close to those small towns, where I don't see that depth as much in a larger city than I was seeing in these small towns. So it was really interesting to see how people were really hyper-conscious of the local concerns.
0: Alan was born in the mid-1980s and considers himself to be a millennial. This is one of the reasons that motivated him to undertake another very interesting research project focused on his own generation.
1: While coming home I read this article that was really bashing uh, the millennial generation saying that we're lazy and unfocused and difficult to work with and moving back in with our families because we couldn't hold down jobs and this article was written by an older journalist and it didn't really have a lot of again a lot of representation from the actual generation that it was talking about and so that article actually really really made me mad because i was a millennial and i just didn't feel that it was representing at least me correctly and the close people around me correctly.
0: So Alan once again started to do his own research and talking to friends about the millennial generation. Some of his friends were taking prestigious jobs, some were going into the military, while others were indeed moving back with their own parents. But Alan wanted to understand this phenomenon better. And so in 2010, he reached out to Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, a professor at Clark University in Massachusetts, who studies the millennial generation. You can actually find some fascinating TED Talks online by Professor Arnett on this very topic. Alan and fellow photographer Morgan McCarthy persuaded Professor Arnett to develop a survey targeting millennials in different parts of the world. And then, why not visualize the study? This is how the Geography of Youth project got started. We
1: came up with a series of 12 questions that we would ask and we set out and bicycled halfway around the world photographing and interviewing uh, millennials and all walks of life in all different, uh, all different countries, the same series of questions and putting them into uh, a visual database that got turned into a public art show.
0: So a couple of things. One, again, the bicycle, What is it with you and bicycle? I think it's your (laughs) environmentalist self, and perhaps you want to keep your uh, low-carbon footprint. But what about the bicycle? Why choose the bicycle always to go around, probably even, I guess, to take the bicycle on a plane? Well,
1: to be honest, the first time we took the bicycles around uh, in the United States, that was uh, sparked from an economical reason. The second project, uh, The Geography of Youth, was continuing with the bicycle because I really fell in love with that form of transportation. It slowed me down and got me to really focus on what I'm doing and gave me time to think in between interviews and between towns or cities. And so that was just absorption of content and absorption of the world around me. It was a great way to see the world, but It also was a great tool to get access into communities that we had no idea, we didn't know anybody or had no idea what to expect. So when you bicycle into a town, you're always kind of an oddity because our bikes weighed 110 pounds and all the stuff strapped to them. And so it was an interesting way to start conversations.
0: The Geography of Youth project lasted a total of four years. Alan and Morgan biked all the way from Fairfax, Alaska down to Santiago, Chile, and then crossed into Uruguay. Eventually they made it to Europe and then to Morocco. Together they produced photographic portraits paired with written interviews of many individuals born between 1980 and 1995. The biking trip was supposed to last much longer, But while in Morocco, Morrigan suffered a bike injury, and they had to cut the trip short. The setback, however, did not prevent them from collecting submissions from all over the world. They hired professional photographers and also put a call out for input and images. The collection currently exceeds 2,000 portraits and narratives. You can see some of the portraits on the project webpage at geographyofyouth.org. We will make sure to post this link on the Life 2.0 Facebook page and on the Life 2.0 Twitter feed. I then asked Alan, what were some of the takeaways from that particular project that did a deep dive into his own generation with young people from all over the world?
1: Before we had left, uh, there had been a lot of research taking place on the 20-somethings in North America and Europe. Um, and talking to some of the researchers that we're working with, they're saying that we'd probably find much different answers in in the rest of the world compared to what millennials in the in North America and Europe are thinking. But we found that to be the complete opposite, which isn't too shocking now, but back then it was a little it was counterintuitive to what they thought. Um, And we just thought that came from really the how interconnected we are with uh, with Internet and the access to access to Internet um, that we're seeing around the world now.
0: How important is it for you to integrate your professional path with the rest of your life? In some ways, also the choice of studies that you made, environment and photography kind of already brings together maybe your values and your interests. And how does the career fit with the rest of your life, how integral is it?
1: Uh, my career uh, choices and the directions that I've gone are re- really affect the affect my personal life. And um, uh, for instance, I've always thought it was more important to me to have um, the quality of life that I wanted in terms of travel, in terms of where I live, than to be locked into uh, a profession or a job that that wasn't exactly where i wanted it to be and of course i've had to take being a freelancer i've taken plenty of assignments that I wouldn't want to take because I, I needed to pay bills and everything. But, uh, generally speaking, I've always worked really hard to have the jobs that were at least leading to the quality of life that I wanted to have and wanted to live. So it's, it's very integrated into my professional and personal life is they're very intertwined.
0: And, and, uh, I follow up to this question in terms of your generation again. um, What do you think is the attitude of millennials towards the corporate world and the world we live in now that is very driven, especially in the U.S., by corporate interest and perhaps the idea of working for others? What do you think matters to your generation when it comes to work and maybe even based on what you found in that research that you did around the world? we're
1: really focused on career paths and jobs that line up with the values that we as an individual stand for. And there's less of a loyalty to corporate brands and corporate identities. Um, I think that has, one, the access to knowledge about what these companies are doing and the access to, um, so many alternatives around the world so there's less of an actual need to be attached to a brand uh, or a corporation i mean we can order things online and get it from around the world in a couple days where where i grew up there was only a couple stores so pre-internet really limited us to shopping were in our geographical area where now we don't aren't restricted to that and so in terms of consumerism and with jobs, I think if the the corporation doesn't line up with with our beliefs or or isn't giving us what we want, then it's uh, there's less of an allegiance to that, and we'll move on. And I think that comes across sometimes as not a good thing for our generation, um, lazy or undedicated. But I actually think that it's a it's it's a good thing because it pushes companies to be really conscious of their consumer and of their employee, and make changes for the the changing of the, the thought process of which is our generation.
0: Mm-hmm. But also, one would think that a lot of corporations are definitely not as generous to their employees as they have been in the past. Maybe in our, in your parents' generation or my parents' generation, when there were benefits, pensions, and all sorts of perks associated with staying with one company for a long time
1: yeah I mean there was I don't even know what a pension is <laughs> the, uh, and also you think when I was leaving college I was told from a very young age that you know you, you work real hard you go to you go to school and you'll get a really good high-paying job that'll have benefits and you'll be set but then when I was leaving, School right before the the recession hit in the United States. Then after that, there were no jobs, and a lot of my friends were struggling to find work, um, and had to make sacrifices like you know moving back into their families or or taking something that was completely out of the realm that they studied, and where they were really struggling. And so, I think that was also a spark where they saw that are seeing that even if they're working really hard, that at any minute they can they can get laid off. And so there's less of an allegiance to the employees from the company. So why shouldn't we move around if we see something that's a better opportunity for us, right?
0: And speaking of benefits, one of the big uh elephants in the room in the US and a concern for everyone is this whole issue of health insurance. So as a creative and a freelancer and a millennial, what do you do about health insurance and what have you what do you do now, what have you done in the past and what risks are you willing to take? I'm aware that the younger you are, maybe the more risks you're willing to take, but what's what are your thoughts around that?
1: Well, for for years, I didn't have insurance when I was bicycling or when I was actually when I was bicycling around the around the United States and around the world. I didn't have uh, I didn't have insurance. Um, and maybe that was oh well, no, not maybe that was definitely a, a, poor, <laughs> a poor decision. But the, uh, the it was just too expensive at the time. And like you said, when you're younger, you take those. You take those gambles. And, um, but now with the modifications of, of how insurance is, is done in the United States now and made it a little more accessible, and I just had to sit down and really think about that and incorporate that as just a cost of doing business and, and, and pay for it.
0: Speaking of choosing to have a creative lifestyle like you did for yourself, do you think you had to give something else up? Do you think that creative freedom comes at the expense of security and stability or not necessarily?
1: Yes, for sure. I've given a lot up. I I mean, I feel, don't get me wrong, I feel very lucky and privileged for all the opportunities that I've gotten. I've gotten to travel a lot and I've gotten to to be creative in my work and move around and so I feel very fortunate and lucky for all all of those opportunities but I have given up some things like um, earlier in my career when my friends were are getting married or are just going on vacations together you now I would have to miss those 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 events cuz was struggling to make ends meet so i couldn't afford to fly to see my friend get married or or go on that vacation that all my my high school friends were going on together or just like making also decisions of like should we go out for uh you know drinks tonight or stay in and save and so the, the the strengths were more um like personal life financial things where I would have to just just cut back and not um, not do as many things as uh, my friends were doing at the time. But I thought that it was uh, definitely thought it was a sacrifice worth making, so that I could stay in this field and stay creative and pursue a path that uh, that I wanted to pursue. To me, cutting back on certain qualities of life and living in smaller apartments or and not going out every time I want to. was much more valuable to me than it was much more valuable to be a creative and not have to be in an office job for me personally so the sacrifices were sometimes hard but they were they're all right i get asked a lot about these these long-term projects and about how i can sustain them for so long and how to encourage someone to do them and i think for at least for these longer-term projects i think that they have to come from a place that is really important to you, because if you're not really interested in the topic and like deeply passionate about the the topic, then you're gonna it's gonna fizzle out and you're just gonna stop working on it. So, before you embark on a project like and that's gonna take a couple years, um, really make sure that it's something that you care about and not just something that's like a hot topic at the time. Um, and know that the topic's going to change, and be a little flexible with that. Don't stay so rigid to to the original idea and move and um, and be willing to explore different avenues and flex with the project. Be creative in the way that's accessible and sustainable for you. Oh, also, I keep my projects usually very close to my heart and uh, wrapped up really really quietly for a long time. I obviously talk to people that I need to, to get advice on, on the piece or researchers or friends or colleagues to get advice, but I don't necessarily post about that and socialize it too much. Um, And I think in, at least in my career, I think that's been really helpful because if I'm not sharing it to a broader audience, then I can be more flexible with it and i I can have more fun with it than having the added weight of all my social network asking me questions about it or following it along with it
0: but i was thinking that perhaps it's also related to if we put some of these projects out there's plenty of people that might take the idea and run with it and do it faster so it's also to protect the idea
1: that's yeah that's also a good point
0: Finally, I asked Alan how supportive his family has been of his career choices, despite perhaps not always understanding the many unconventional and creative projects that he has embarked on.
1: You know, I would call home, and, and I still get from my from my mom if uh, how work is and if I'm if I'm getting enough to 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 survive and. If I'm gonna get a normal nine to five job anytime soon, so she's <laughs> she's she's just concerned about I think like all moms are. She's just worried about <laughs> worried about uh, you know how things are going. But they've always been really supportive of the traveling and uh, the fact that I spent years sleeping in you know sleeping in a tent to, to, to bike around and do this stuff. They see they see the passion in, in that I have, and so I think that excites them. And they always love to come down to the city if I'm having a show and and support me and see that. So I don't think I could be where I am without that kind of like verbal support that they have given me over the years. So I'm really thankful for that.
0: Before we end this episode, I want to share with you what Alan is working on now. And yes, I asked him if I could share this project with you all. He said, yes, no more close hold. The genie is out of the box. So here we go. For the past four years, Alan has been photographing threatened and endangered species. To increase community understanding of the impact of climate change, he has created an interactive art experience on endangered species, where viewers can preserve the images of the endangered species through their active engagement. In the same way that endangered species will disappear forever if humans don't take action to protect them, Alan's spectacular images progressively fade, I mean really fade, at a speed based on the extinction rate of the species, unless the viewer is standing in the engagement zone. So the more people engage with the image, the faster the species will be revived. If there is a lack of engagement for an extended period, the image will eventually fade entirely and will not be revived. This represents the extinction of a species. It's genius, I think. We will post some of Alan's images on the Life 2.0 Facebook and on Instagram. Really, check them out. They're amazing. And also, if you want to bring this interactive art experience on endangered species into your community or know of a potential show space that may want to host this exhibit, please contact Alan directly through his website, um, which is www.alanwinslow.com. It's A-L-A-N-W-I-N. Slow.com. That website also has his email. You can email him directly or contact him via Instagram. Thank you so much for following us. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Live2.0 Pod. That is life the number 2.0 pod. Like us also on Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast via Apple iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.